when Mary became queen of England in 1516. One of our very first works was to bring the country of England under the sway of the Roman Catholic Church again. One of our very first acts was to arrest three men, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cramner. After serving time in the Tower of London, these three ultimately were taken to Oxford in September of 1555 to be examined by the Lord's Commissioner. And when Ridley was asked if he believed that the Pope was the heir of the authority of Peter, he replied that the church was not built on any man but on the truth of God's Word. That Peter confessed that the Christ was the Son of God and that this was the foundation of the church and not a man. Ridley said that he could not honor the Pope in Rome since the papacy was seeking its own glory and not the glory of God. Thus, Ridley nor Latimer could accept the Roman Catholic Mass as a sacrifice for Christ. Ultimately, these two men would die together, and Cramner would recount everything that he came to affirm and believe in the Protestant Reformation. And Ridley and Latimer were joined together in death in Oxford on October the 16th, 1555. In fact, if you were to travel to Oxford today, there is in the pavement, in the middle of the street, where the pyre once stood, where these two men were burned alive. And at their death, those surrounding them recorded these final words. Ridley said this, O Heavenly Father, I give unto you most heartily thanks that you have called me to be a professor of you, even unto death. I beseech you, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. Now, Ridley's brother had brought with him gunpowder in order for Latimer and for Ridley to tie around their neck. This would, obvious, for obvious reasons, expedite the sufferings of these two men as they were burned. The problem was, and often they, those that were making these executions, um, would choose wood that was green in order to allow the fire to burn longer, not necessarily hotter, and thus causing greater pain. And as Ridley still was suffering greatly because the fire was green, he cried out, into thy hands, O Lord, commit my spirit. Lord, have mercy on me. I cannot burn. The fire comes up to me. I cannot burn. And as Ridley is crying this out, as he's asking that God would, would end his life as quickly and as painlessly as possible, all because they believe that Jesus died in the place of sinners. Latimer died more quickly that day. And those gathered in the crowd could hear Latimer crying out to his best friend, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. For today, we shall light such a candle by the grace of God in England that I trust shall never be put out. And friend, you and I, as Southern Baptists, stand in the rich tradition of these Anglican brothers who died a horrific death because they were willing to stand on the truth of God's Word. That Jesus Christ came to die in the place of sinners. And that no man and no church 
who had greater authority than the Word of God. I wonder if we face similar circumstances today. That if our government was to tell us that we cannot preach Christ crucified, that would we, could we deny the Lord Jesus? Would we do it? Could we go to our death proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Friend, I wonder this morning, how are you tempted to deny Jesus? We will not, Lord willing, ever have to stand before a governor or a king or any earthly authority. But I wonder, what subtle ways are you tempted this morning to deny Christ? Perhaps it's your denial of the Lord by distancing yourself from Him. By denying that you need Him. You might deny Jesus before others when they deride Christian morality. When they hear that you stand on certain moral principles and ethical truths revealed in Scripture. Perhaps you're even fearful to tell others that you're a follower of Christ because they'll think about you differently. Or perhaps end a friendship that you hold so dearly. Perhaps for you this morning, your faith is a private matter to which if we were to call your friends up, they would be entirely surprised to hear that this is where you are and how you spend your time. And I wonder, how are you and I tempted to deny Jesus? Of course, over the last several weeks, we've taken a slow look at these final days and hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. It began several weeks ago with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Her long-awaited king had finally arrived, but only a few gathered to celebrate, to sing the hosannas and the praise as the king came into his temple. Silence settled and evil began to reign. The kingdom was marching forward and the cross was looming larger and larger. And, and so it has even to our text this morning. Jesus is celebrated. He's inaugurated the kingdom of God through the first supper. A foretaste of a future supper that He will have with all of His gathered church. And there Jesus reminded His disciples that He had come to do the Father's will. That even as the kingdom was coming, it would not come without conflict. And He reminded them then, at that final meal that they shared together, that there would be one there that would, be, that would betray Him. And even one that would ultimately deny Him. The hour has now come for the Son of Man to die as the sin-bearing, substitutionary atoning sacrifice that God had purposed to come to send before He created the first molecule. From eternity past, He had purposed this day. And we are only hours from it. Well, friends, with all of this in mind in the context of where we are this morning, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to consider verses 47 through 65. Again, I've intentionally slowed down because I believe Peter, or excuse me, Luke rather, has slowed the camera. The pace of the film has been quick. 
He has covered a lot of ground. But here in these final chapters, the pace begins to slow as the camera begins to focus in on the one who came to die, our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 22, verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, This man also is with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Friends, as we consider these verses, we remember that Luke is writing to, Onis, to, his, to Theophilus to give him uh, an account that is both orderly and one that is meant to assure him of his faith. And friends, even as you consider the characters of this text, we are reminded of this overarching truth. That even the best of humanity and the most devout disciple needs a Savior from sin. This passage speaks to the historicity of the Scriptures. Think about it for a moment. Who in, in the early church, in their right mind, would take the most prominent figure, Peter, and tell a story about Peter in this way? The one who led the church... Why would anybody tell a story about him if it was not true, if it was not to teach us, as he played the man? As his failure reminds each of us and teaches all of us of our most desperate need 
for what Jesus is doing in these moments. In, in other words, G, that Peter is a picture of all of us, of our desperate need of Christ's saving work. So this morning, if you take notes, we have really two points I want us to consider. First, the nature of Christ's kingdom. So as we think about the saving work, what Jesus is doing, how this plan of redemption is unfolding before us, we see in the scene there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas comes and betrays him. And all that ensues there in the chaos of that night. We see a glimpse of the nature of Christ's kingdom. How is Jesus going to save? What is His kingdom all about? And then in Peter's denial, we see the need for Christ sacrificed. So we see the nature of Christ's kingdom, and then we see the need for Christ's sacrifice. First, in verses 47 through 53, we see the nature of Christ's kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of Jesus is not like the kingdoms of this world. He does not force Himself upon others, nor does He capture people through swords, but through words of conviction. We notice in our text this morning several aspects of the kingdom of Christ. So I hope that you'll see them. First, we see that the kingdom of Christ is loving. It's loving. We see also that the nature of Christ's kingdom is restoring. In this scene here where the disciples want to chop off people's ears, Jesus is graciously restoring His enemy's ear. And lastly, in these conversation, we see that Christ's kingdom is saving. Though the enemy sought to destroy Him, He, through this horrible evil, saved the world. We see first here that Christ's kingdom is coming. Let's just imagine for just a moment the, the characters in the scene. We have, as we're told, Judas, the man who's called Judas. And Luke intentionally includes this as well as the other gospel writers in order to heighten the tension that this wasn't just some random man, but this is one from the inner circle. This is one of the twelve. This is one of the men who has lived with Jesus for three years, who has left everything to follow Jesus. Other gospel writers tell us that Judas was in charge of the money. He was brought in close and near. He heard all the private conversations, all of the after hours and, and long nights where the disciples would discuss. He was there on the, on the sea when Jesus calmed it. He was there when Peter stepped out of the boat and Jesus walked on water. He saw all of the miracles and all of the healings. He heard all of the sermons. He shared countless meals with Jesus. Perhaps having even intimate conversations where he got to ask him questions about his kingdom and his reign. About what it was like in heaven and with his heavenly father. Things that are unrecorded to us, unknown to us. Judas had private access to the boardroom. This again heightens the betrayal all the more. This is one who is close to Jesus. But we see in his action what he does. When he identifies Jesus, he tells, the other gospel writers tell us that he 
tells the soldiers, hey, the guy I kiss is, is Jesus. Now, of course, a, a kiss is a sign of affection, of love. Judas chooses an instrument that is often meant to communicate emotion and care and affection in order to signal betrayal. Where Judas sought to show affection, Christ will prove His greatest love by dying the death we deserve. Interestingly enough, we see Jesus asking this question. And it's a rhetorical question, but it's tinged with theological meaning in order, I believe, to offer Judas one last chance. Hear it again. Judas calls him by name. This man is betraying him. This man is the very man who is going to turn him over to the religious leaders. But he calls him Judas. Judas would have heard Jesus call his name many times. An affectionate response to tremendous evil. Judas, would you really betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus says, will you really betray the Son of Man? This is Jesus' favorite title for Himself. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel prophesies of one, the Son of Man who would come and rule and reign over Christ, over God's kingdom, the Messiah. Is this really what you want to do? Is this really how you want to go down? Is this what your legacy is going to be? You're going to come against me, the Son of Man, the one who is going to rule and reign over the cosmos at the right hand of the Father? Is this, is this really what you want to do, Judas? Friend, do you see the love and the compassion of Christ towards his enemy? He doesn't dismiss him, but he extends him grace. This is the loving nature of our God, that he seeks to save enemies, even betrayers. And the tragedy of the entire scene is that, of course, we know the end That unfortunately Judas is unwilling to turn and repent and goes headlong into his own willful rebellion. The nature of Christ's kingdom is one of love even against those who are our enemies. This is why Christ commands us in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We heard it in the voice of Latimer and Ridley. Though they were being killed, they they prayed that, that the king, the queen in this case, would see the light and be saved. We see also as the scene develops, the disciples who earlier had been told, hey, get some swords together. Now, of course, Peter is a zealot. He's excited. Now, Luke doesn't name Peter by name, but of course, John calls him out. You've got to love some of that, John calling out Peter in his sin uh, and in his foolishness. But he does. He names names here, but uh, Luke doesn't. And we know the one here in verse 49, the, 
the one that, that pulls out the sword and cuts off the ear of the serpent, or the, the servant rather. He thinks that the kingdom is coming by force. Peter thinks that he's going to save Jesus, but it's really Jesus who needs to save Peter. And we're reminded here as Jesus rebukes his disciples, he says, that's enough of this, that's enough. We see that the kingdom of Christ is restoring. Again, this is a a servant. Look at the text, verse 49. And they went out, Lord, will we strike with the sword? Verse 50. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. I mean, just imagine the scene, the chaos of this. He pulls out the sword and starts wheeling it. He's not very good at it. He just ends up cutting the guy's ear off instead of his head. And Jesus is like, that's enough. Notice his enemy, Jesus shows compassion to this man and he heals him. Now there's some irony in this, isn't it, friend? Did you see the irony of this whole thing? This whole band of, of folks have come out against Jesus. And Jesus, while he's in the midst of tremendous agony, this is the night that he's sweating drops of blood. He's under tremendous pain. He knows that the, the cross is what awaits him in the morning. And he takes time to heal a man, put his ear back on. And in none of the Gospels do we see any response to that. Like, hey, did you, hey, did you see that? Like, like that, that dude's ear just came back. No saving work. No response. No, no like, hey, maybe we need to put pause on this whole thing. Maybe this really is someone special. Maybe this is the Son of God. Hey, my servant's ear just got chopped off and now it's back on. Now, John calls him out as Malchus. Perhaps a little clue that he was forever transformed by these events. Perhaps he was known by the early church and why his name is mentioned. Regardless, we see that Christ is coming to restore, not to kill. The kingdom will not come by military might or force, but through a bloody cross. What may appear to the natural eye as a tragic defeat will prove to be Christ's greatest victory. And this is what he goes on to make clear in verses 51 through 53. He calls out the hypocrisy and injustice of the religious leaders. And he says, listen guys, since I was a young boy, I used to hang out in the temple. I loved hanging out in the temple. I preached in the, in the open air. I did ministry in the light. I never tried to to start a rebellion in the dark. You had ample opportunity to arrest me. But to demonstrate that you are instruments in the Redeemer's hand to bring about His eternal purposes, this is your hour, this is your time of darkness. It reminds us of, of what Joseph faced in the book of Genesis. And the words that he said to his brothers when he says, you meant this for evil, but God is using it for good. That God used the evil acts of these men to bring about his greatest act of redemption. What was for the religious leaders meant to be their crowning achievement. Finally, ridding the world of this nuisance that had been stirring up the people's expectations and causing conflict with the Roman occupiers. What was for Satan the hour of darkness where he thought, finally, This pesky little son of man who's been bothering me for millennia 
I'm finally going to defeat him. The, the ancient serpent thought this was the opportunity, and so he reaches out to bruise his heel, only to find that heel crushing his head. Friend, it's a reminder to us all that, that there is evil around us. Jesus says that, that he has come to save. Christ's kingdom is saving, which implies that we can't save ourselves. We should imagine the darkness and the evil that's behind the, 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 the curtain here. And this is why J.C. Ryle writes this, Let us take comfort from our Lord's words as we look forward to our own futures. If we are followers of Christ, we have an hour of trial. And it may be long hour too, but we may rest assured that the darkness will not last one moment longer than God sees fit for us. In His good time, it will vanish away. We see that Christ, the nature of Christ's kingdom overcomes evil with the good work of the cross. It's a reminder to us that when we face evil, we are not to seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, commanding them, exhorting them, to repay evil, not with evil, but with good, and so heaping burning coals on those who seek to afflict them. See, our response is to embrace the nature of Christ's kingdom. If we are citizens of this kingdom, then our lives as we face evil must be marked by love. We must see restoration as the goal. That is why we, when we are in conflict, reconciliation is the goal, not destruction. For Christ is a model for us of dealing with evil. Brothers and sisters, Jesus willingly endured evil by His betrayer so that He could save you from your treasonous acts against God. Consider the wickedness of the human heart and how the Lord has rescued you from yourself. Consider the willingness of Jesus, your Savior, to endure evil by sinners and for sinners. See that He did this for you. This is why we see our need for Christ's sacrifice made evidently clear through Peter's Denial. Let's consider that now. Secondly, the need for Christ's sacrifice. Verse 54 through 65. The need for Christ's sacrifice is seen in this passage in two ways. First, in Peter's denial. Peter, the leader among the disciples, is the one who falls the hardest. He was a first among equals. That doesn't mean that you know, we're to understand sort of, sort of a succession of a pope from him. But he was a leader. He's the one mentioned most throughout your Bible. He was the disciple. He was the man. He was the spokesman. And he was also the one who fell the hardest. But we also see the need for a sin-bearing sacrifice through what these guards do to Jesus as they have a little horseplay with your Savior. They mock him and beat him and revile him. Let's see, first Peter's denial is a display of our need for Christ's sacrifice. Friend, it is the best and the brightest 
And if they can fall short, well, surely we can fall short. And just as Jesus had predicted, Peter falls and denies him three times. Let's look very briefly at the scene. First, they arrest Jesus and lead him astray. And remember what Peter had told Jesus? Peter had said, I will not deny you. In fact, I'm ready to die for you. And Peter, he starts out on that road. Notice here, he follows him at a distance. He actually goes. Everybody else runs away. All the other disciples scatter. Peter is like, no, I'm ready to die for Jesus. I got you, Jesus. I'm with you in this. And so he goes into the enemy's lair. Don't miss the fact that Peter puts himself in harm's way by actually showing up at the high priest's house. Then he goes into the inner court and he mingles with the enemy. The problem with Peter is that he didn't obey Jesus when he wasn't watching and praying. Peter was filled with pride. He thought he, could, he, thought he got this. I, I have this. I can do this. But as the events unfold, Peter did not happen. And he denies him three times. First, a little servant girl, we are told, it identifies Peter as a disciple. Hey, 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 I've seen this fellow before. Now, she was a servant girl. Perhaps she was there in the garden. Clearly, the guy who chops off ears, yeah, you're probably going to want to pay attention to this guy. You know, maybe he's got some, uh, some other tricks up his sleeve, and he's, he's kind of come into the camp there, and he's going to cause mayhem. Maybe he's got some other ears he needs to whack off. But regardless, here, this, this, this servant girl says, he's one of them. Verse 57, woman, I do not know him. Innocent enough, perhaps. Perhaps in a similar situation, you and I might do the same. I I don't know him. Woman, I don't know him. But then yet another in verse 58. A little later, someone else said, Are you not one of the disciples? Aren't you one of them? Man, I am not. He goes from, I don't even know him, to, I am definitely not one of those guys. Do not lump me in the crowd. Man, I am am uh, pro-Caiaphas. I am pro-high priest. Yeah, man, that's me. And then notice how Luke records this unfolding. Verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour, let's pause for a minute. It's been an hour. (laughs) Surely Peter is starting to kind of, you know, remember a few things that Jesus had literally just told him an hour earlier. I mean, we're not talking like weeks have gone past. Literally only hours, minutes have passed. Jesus told him, Peter, you're going to deny me. I will never deny you, Jesus. I am going to follow you to death. He had time to think about what he's done. He had time to have... uh, remorse. He had time to confess his sin, but no, no, no. Peter gets on on the diving board at the deep end of the pool, and he thinks he can swim, but what ultimately happens is he's called out. Now, notice what the text says. He says, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. You know, you can change your disguise. You can wear different clothes. Um, and y'all down here, you know, you know how that is, right? You're, you're going to get what I'm about to say. 
You can change your attire, but as soon as you open your mouth, it reveals where you're from. Isn't that true? Right? We can try to change our appearances. And for Peter, perhaps he did. Perhaps there was some disguise. Perhaps there was something he was doing. But his words, his accent, revealed that he was a Galilean. And Jesus had done his greatest ministry there in Galilee. And as Jesus denied him that third time, the alarm went off and the rooster crowed. And what we see ensuing is nothing more than grace upon grace. Jesus at a higher elevation, Peter down in the courtyard being illumined by a fire. Notice what happens. Man, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know nothing about this Jesus fellow. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine the look. You've gotten the look. The angry look, the disappointed look. Friend, this wasn't that. This was a compassionate look. This was a loving look. Remember what Jesus had told Peter? He didn't say to Peter, when you deny me three times, I'm done with you. He said, when you turn again, Restore your brothers. The Lord's look was a look of compassion towards a sinner who needed a Savior. His look was not a look of condemnation, but a look of grace and mercy. Father, save them from this hour, for I have come for this hour. Through this look, Christ revealed man's greatest need, and it was the death of Christ. J.C. Ryle again helps us. He writes this, The love of Christ toward His people is as deep a well which has no bottom. Let us never measure it by trying to compare it with any kind of love men and women can give. It exceeds all other loving in the same way that the sun exceeds all other light. Christ's love is a mine of compassion, patience, and readiness to forgive. Let us never be afraid to trust that love when we first feel our sins. Let us never be afraid to go on trusting it after we have once believed. No one need ever despair, however far he may have fallen, if he will only repent and turn to Christ. If the heart of Jesus was so gracious when He was a prisoner in the judgment hall, we surely need not think it any less gracious when He sits in glory at the right hand of the Father. Even as He was being unjustly convicted of a crime He did not commit, He showed grace and compassion to Peter. And Peter went out, we are told, and wept bitterly. The bitter sting of sin 
and the pain of our own wickedness. Luke goes on then, not only to display Peter's denial as evidence for our own sin and our known need for Christ, but we get a glimpse, don't we not, in these three verses that follow, a picture of who we really are. If there's any verse in your Bible that that serves as a mirror for humanity, friend, I think it's these three verses. A mirror of our own wickedness. Now, surely we're not as bad as we could be. The Bible says that that God is restraining evil. So don't don't think that you're as evil as you could be. But but friend, I think you get a sense of how wicked we are here in verses 63 and 65. These men that were holding Jesus take the occasion to just unjustly beat him, mock him, smack him around a bit, and then make fun of him. Surely they had searched stories about Jesus. Surely they had heard about his reputation. Uh, He claims to be the Messiah. Well, let's see. He claims to be a prophet. Let's test it out. We're reminded of what what one author wrote. The line separating good and evil passes not through states or between classes nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Brothers and sisters, sin is universal, the Bible teaches. That it has captured every one of our hearts, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. It has infected every one of us. And that while we are not as evil as we could be, nevertheless, evil still resides in us. We get a glimpse of why Jesus came to save men like these verses, to save you and I. We ought not to consider texts like this in pride and say, I wouldn't do that. Friend, I think we're all inclined to this kind of wickedness given the opportunity. We all need to be rescued from our own self-destructive ways. And Christ has come to do just that. Friend, I wonder, do you see your desperate need for Christ's sacrifice? Whether it be in Peter's denial or in these guards' wicked acts, brothers and sisters, Christ has come to die in our place. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as he preached this text, the Lord, he said, followed up the rooster's crow and the rooster's warning voice with an admonition look of sorrow, pity, and love. Again, thinking of that glance. That glance was never out of Peter's mind so long as he lived. It was far more effectual than 10,000 sermons would have ever been without the Spirit. The penitent apostle would be sure to weep when he remembered the Savior's full forgiveness which restored him to his former place. To think that we have offended so kind and good a Lord is more than sufficient reason for being consistent weepers. Lord, smite our rocky hearts and make the waters flow. How do you respond to a text like this? I think verse 62 is how you respond. You weep bitterly. You know, Peter was a sinner. He, he was ready to die for Jesus. But what he really needed 
was for Jesus to die for him. Friends, tears start the journey towards restoration. The tears that Peter shed that night was the beginning of his restoration. And John records in John chapter 21 that Peter would ultimately be restored. And maybe that familiar scene that you know, Peter, do you love me more than these? Of course I love you. Peter, do you love me more than these? I love you. Why are you questioning my love? Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, I love you more than these. He told Peter and reminded him of his future, that there was coming a day where some men were going to take him where he did not want to go, that he would be bound, a sinner, to die, not for his own sins, but to die because he was following the one who died in the place of sinners. Brothers and sisters, the hope of restoration was not in Peter, but in the one whom Peter trusted in. Peter did not remain in his state of rebellion. He learned to hate sin. And brothers and sisters, that is where we must begin. To turn from our sin and to trust in Christ's sacrifice and to know that He is willing to accept us today. Take up these observations and consider them in your own life. Let us see the nature of temptation. See and study our enemy. Know his tactics, lest we too fall. Let us see the Lord's remedy when we face these hours of trial. That the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is our remedy. That we ought to watch and to pray. To be persistent in prayer. And let us know that when we stumble, that when we fall, All we need to do is to look to Christ who is looking at us with compassion and mercy for He saves sinners for His glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask this morning the prayer that we prayed at the beginning. Father, what we know not teach us. What we have not give us. What we are not make us. For your glory and for our eternal good, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.